Hello and welcome to the Humanizing Growth podcast series brought to you by the Institute for Real Growth. Each week, IRG founders Frank von den Driest and Mark de Swan-Arons will be talking to global leaders and practitioners to discuss what it takes to drive human-centric growth. For more information, visit www.instituteforrealgrowth.com. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. This is Mark Swan-Arons of the Institute for Real Growth welcoming you to yet another edition of the Humanized Growth Series. I would like to do a special welcome to two people and one special guest has not been in the Humanized Growth Series before, Colin Mayer, and of course, Andrew Stephen, our partner. You are from the Science Business School. And uh, Colin, I'll give you a proper introduction in a minute. But first, I'd like to just say welcome and ask you, where are you and how are you? I'm in uh, Oxford, UK at my home, and I'm very fortunate to be well, as are the rest of my family. Fantastic. And Andrew, where are you and how are you? Uh, I'm well, thank you, Mark. And I am just outside of London at home for the first time today. It looks like the sun's come out. So we started the day with a lot of fog, but now we can see the sunshine. So hopefully that uh, bodes well for the weekend. What's so special about these webinars is that we truly have participants from all over the world. I just saw a message from somebody saying hello from the tip of Southern Africa. We have participants uh, from Australia, Asia, the Americas, uh, both South and North. And uh, what's so special today is that Andrew and I are having a conversation with Colin. Colin Mayer, who I think has a totally undervalued contribution to the whole area of purpose, of sustainable business, and to what I believe, and the Institute for Real Growth believe, is the future of business. Uh, Colin, it's an enormous honor uh, to have you here. The um, Peter Morse uh, professor, colleague of Andrew at the Said Business School, a relative new school at Oxford University, taken in the scope of the length of the life of the university. And we're going to go into many of the things that you have spoken about before and, and really put that in the context of the IRG program, because this series is called the Humanized Growth Series. It's about helping uh, chief marketing officers and other senior business leaders, really supporting them as they pivot and help the whole business pivot to more human-centric strategies. When you talk about human-centric, I think it's appropriate to start to actually think about what's happening today around us. The human tragedy on the one side, the uh, heroism on the other side, by so many volunteers and uh, healthcare workers and, uh, and businesses having to pivot in just about everything they do. So before we get into the content, I'd like to just ask you to reflect on the last six months and say, what has been for you the biggest learning since the onset of COVID-19? Really, I think, Mark, exactly what this series is all about. It's the most serious learning that I think many of us have had are is about humanity, uh, the importance of community and collegiality, and being able to contribute to each other's well-being. And I think, in relation to business, what of what many of us have been struck by is the way in which business is able to respond in circumstances which demanded and find ways of contributing and contributing in forms that are 
really important and meaningful. And that is exactly what I think we're all trying to promote. So maybe we should start now, Colin. Let's start with your purpose, if you don't mind. So what is it, but also how and, and when did you know what it was? My, my purpose is to try and drive a change that I think is of fundamental importance. It's a change around the way in which we design our institutions and organizations and how we design one of the most important institutions and organizations in our lives, namely business. It's a business that clothes, feeds and houses us, that employs us and invests our savings. It's been the source of tremendous prosperity around the world and economic growth. But we're also increasingly coming to realize that it's been a source of considerable problems in relation to the environment and equality, social exclusion, and increasing mistrust. And really, the purpose that I see myself as trying to promote is the notion of corporate purpose and to bring purpose into people's lives through the lives that they spend in the organizations in which they work. Now, the point at which I realized the significance of this was after the uh, financial crisis and uh, I come at this as an economist, an economist uh, who specializes in financial economics, in corporate finance. So it's the end of the uh, academic spectrum, which is most focused on the functioning of markets and financial markets in particular. So it's the one that people most closely associate with the notion of academics who really look at the importance of profit and the way in which people are motivated through money. And what I realized after the financial crisis was that that way of looking at business was some fundamentally flawed mm -hmm. and that we needed to basically not just respond to the crisis by thinking that we could patch up the system we've got, but recognizing that we need to have some fundamental changes in direction. So, well, that raises some big questions in my mind, because I remember a conversation with the head of one of the biggest marketing organizations here in the US, I want to say four or five years ago, and it was part of our marketing 2020 work, and we wanted to um, present to the annual meeting uh, a whole section on purpose. And he said, oh, purpose again, that's, that's, that's over now. And it, and, and it, it, it was a buzz uh, word and it was accused of being a buzz word. Uh, and now I think people fundamentally understand uh, that actually it's a throwback all the way to the beginnings. And I'm sorry, I'm gonna ask you to teach here, but I think it's really worth it. Would you take us a little bit on the journey of how it all started, how it got lost, and, and, and then where you think we stand now? Well, it started 2,000 years ago. It started <laughs> okay. with the emergence of the corporation under Roman law, uh, which created a, a legal structure known as the Societas Publicanorum, which was the origins of the corporation. And as its name suggested, 
what the Romans had in mind was an organization that was going to perform a public function. So from the very outset, it had as its origins the notion that it was there to perform a purpose, a public purpose. And through much of its 2000 year history, it's had that notion of combining commercial functions with the delivery of a social and public benefit. Now, what's happened over the last few years is this notion of purpose has gone through various cycles, cycles which have shifted from that notion of the public functioning of a company to what has emerged over the last 60 years, and that is that it's predominantly about making money, very closely associated with that famous Milton Friedman doctrine, which has just had its 50th anniversary. But what's happened over the last 10 or so years is another cycle in which people have recognized that there's more to business than making money, but the form it initially took in terms of corporate purpose was what was described as corporate social responsibility, namely companies should do something good in the form of philanthropy, and that was basically all they needed to do to go on promoting the notion of profit. And slowly what's emerged over the last few years is a recognition that that is completely unsatisfactory. You cannot simply change business by introducing an element of philanthropy. The notion of what the Carnegie's, the the Mellons, the Rockefellers and the Vanderbilts did as the robber barons of engaging in pillage and rape and then seeking redemption through giving away the money. That's just not the way that business should be functioning. And that one has to recognize that the notion of a purpose of a company has to lie at the core of its business and be aligned with its strategy. And that's what's just beginning to happen. And so what we're talking about in relation to the notion of corporate purpose is very different from the way in which it's sometimes described in terms of promotion, and dare I say it in the presence of this uh, illustrious audience, marketing. It, it has to derive from the very core of what a business stands for. So Colin, with, with that point in mind, if we not just think about say what's happened over the last few years, but, but the last six months, um, what's been the impact, not only I, I think of COVID, but, but of the all sorts of issues happening around the world uh, with respect to diversity and politics, all of the things that have been going on and causing a lot of unrest for people. What's where, where, Let's bring this back, all of that context back into then what you're saying about the core purpose of corporations. And, and is this accelerating the move? Or I, I could imagine on the flip side, just to play the devil's advocate, there'd be some organizations saying, well, you know what, now it's, there's just too many things for us to be worrying about here. And we've got to, in some sense, stay alive before we can 
um, think about anything else. So what's been happening really lately, I suppose? So it's not just a few organizations, it's many organizations that are saying, well, purpose is all very well, but you know, things are simply just too tough. We have to survive. We have to focus on our profit and purpose has to take a back seat, at least for the moment. And that was exactly the response to corporate social responsibility during the financial crisis. Mm -hmm. And lots of companies simply abandoned those do-gooding philanthropic programs. And it's much the same sort of attitude that is giving rise to the notion that purpose is a luxury which we simply cannot afford at the moment. What companies that really have purpose at their heart are realizing is, on the contrary, they can't possibly do without it. Why? Well, let's go back to what corporate purpose is. A purpose of something is the reason why it exists, why it's created, what it's there to do. It's raison d'etre. Now, you can't get much more fundamental than why something exists. In this case, why does a business exist? So knowing why your business exists is absolutely fundamental to knowing how you should respond in times of crisis. So the response of people that saying, oh, this is something that we just can't afford to do at the present time is exactly the converse of what purpose is there to do. Purpose is there to, do, to tell you what to do when the going gets tough because it provides you with a clear North Star of what the business is really suited to do what it can do in response to changing circumstances and how it converts crisis into opportunities. That is to say, when you have a crisis, lots of things fail and lots of problems emerge. What a purpose does is to make you recognize how you can really address those problems and respond to them in such a way that is commercially beneficial for the firm. If I can just illustrate that with an example that came out of the uh, the leadership program here at the IRG, we saw two instances. I mean, immediately with the onset, there was a freezing of most campaigns where people were either worried that they were doing things that were inappropriate and insensitive, especially also with the social uh, equity um, discussions and uh, upheaval immediately after. And then there were lots of companies, we had people in our program that said we weren't sure what we were allowed to say. We weren't sure if we were allowed to say anything. In stark contrast to some other participants, and one was a, a loud one on the outside world, which was Dove, not a participant, but a friend of the program, who knew exactly what to say, who didn't need to ask permission, who didn't need to go up the communication chains, uh, where people just fundamentally knew what they were about, and therefore how they needed to react. And I think a, a crisis like COVID really emphasizes whether it's something that is a statement by the elevator doors or something that's ingrained in the full uh, company culture and, uh, and direction. Am I right? And the example you're giving, namely of Unilever, is a very good case in point. Alan Jope, the uh, current CEO, said that purpose helps brands to grow, companies to survive, and people to thrive. And that's exactly what it is. And 
To understand why that's the case, you just have to go to what is a purpose of a business. It's in many CEOs' minds, no longer a question of whether or why, but what and how, what does purpose actually mean? And what is a, a relevant statement of purpose to make? And how should it be embedded in a business? Now, I've been saying that the purpose of a business is not simply the Milton Friedman notion uh, to increase profit so long as a company stays within the rules of the game. The way in which I believe one should look at that notion of why a company exists or is created is around it being there to solve problems, to solve problems that you and I as individuals, as societies, as the natural world face. And the challenge that business faces is, how does it find profitable commercial ways of doing that? Because clearly, a business is not a charity. This is not about philanthropy. This is about hard-nosed business and the ways in which companies can solve those problems in such a way as to be financially profitable for their investors and allows them to be financially sustainable going forward. So the way in which I define the notion of a corporate purpose is to produce profitable solutions to the problems of people and planet. And furthermore, that that notion of profit is one where companies should not be profiting from producing problems for people or planet. Now, the reason why that notion of purpose is so helpful in thinking about it in relation to crises like the pandemic is that, as I've just been saying, what the pandemic is doing is to throw up numerous problems for individuals and for societies around the world. So in the process of creating those problems, if a company looks to itself as an organization there to solve problems profitably, that creation of new problems creates new profitable opportunities for companies. So that companies that have a clear notion of their purpose immediately benefit from the changing environment and a recognition of what problems they can really solve. So Colin, if I, I want to bring it into a little bit um, into marketing right now, and I'm noticing some, some questions also popping up in the chat. And, and one particularly caught my eye from Seth Rogan, who is a good friend of, of us at Oxford. He's an associate fellow. And Seth is asking about this at the level of a brand. So, you know, we were talking about, say, Unilever as the corporate entity, but then, you know, Dove as a brand within that portfolio. Seth's basically saying, does every brand need to have purpose or, he says, social responsibility? You know, to quote him, he's saying, I'm not sure that I want moral lessons from my orange juice container, but I do want to be an ethical consumer. So how do we translate this into brands and then also the products and services that are offered to consumers in the market? Um, outside of just the overarching corporate purpose, which I think uh, is, is, a, is, is very, very rightly so. The notion of a purpose is one that has to be defined at the corporate level, often by the executives uh, and at least supported and endorsed 
by the board of the company. But then the key element, once one's identified that purpose, is to embed it in the organization. And what that means is not creating a purpose or different purpose for each and every unit or division or brand within the organization, but thinking about what the relevance of that corporate purpose is to the different parts of a business. So that every part of the business feels that they've got an ownership of that purpose and ownership of a particular part of that purpose, and they are contributing to the delivery of that corporate purpose. So what is needed is that translation of that high level corporate purpose into what it means in practice for every particular part of a business. And once that translation has occurred, the next stage is to make it real, to bring it to life. Because one of the major problems that arises in particular in large scale multinational organizations is how do you ensure that you get buy-in from all parts of the organization so that each and every unit needs to feel that this is authentic and is really relevant to them and is therefore reflected in the way in which their activities are evaluated, measured, rewarded, incentivized, etc. And that the culture of the organization is conducive to doing that throughout the business. Yeah, I think you you raised you both raised a point, and Andrew, I'm going to turn the question on you in a minute <laughs> as a marketing professor, because I'm sure you have a a view on the role of the marketer. But let me build on the discussion you were just having. Uh, so what I'm hearing you say, Colin, is, and, and I think many portfolio brand companies have gotten themselves a bit in a twist here and sometimes lost their focus in desperately trying to find an active purpose that can be communicated uh, with shiny bells and whistles at every brand level, uh, where sometimes the uh, the link between the brand purpose and the corporate stated purpose uh, was questionable, to say the least. I, I, I would think the conclusion one is that no brand may do anything that is contrary to what the corporation has stated as its purpose, and that many brands may be contributing to that purpose in ways that they don't necessarily need to put on their packaging. Um, do you agree? Yes, absolutely. That uh, it's certainly the case that now, one has to ensure that all parts of the business are operating in ways that are consistent with the corporate purpose. But the fact that they come under the umbrella of the company means that it's not necessary for each and every uh, brand and product of a firm to demonstrate how it's, uh, uh, how it's contributing to that purpose. It's necessary for it to ensure that it's living by that purpose. And that, that component really emphasizes a key element that marketing is playing in this regard. That I started off by saying that purpose is not just about promotion uh, and branding or, or marketing. But what it is about is solving problems. And in the process of solving problems, one has to have a real deep understanding of the markets in which one's operating and the nature of the problems that consumers are facing uh, and other parties indeed in the company's ecosystem. It's not just their consumers. And in that regard, 
marketing is a key role to play in terms of communication in both directions, communication of what the, the needs of consumers are in relation to the company's purpose and how that translates then into the way in which particular products, particular brands can help to solve those problems that a company is saying are part of its purpose mission. So what is key in terms of that enactment of a company's purpose is for it to identify what the problems are it's seeking to solve, how it's seeking to solve them, and why that company, in particular part of the company, is particularly well suited to solve those problems. And that, in that regard, marketing can play an absolutely key function. Yeah, and I, I would like to bounce the question right back at you, Andrew. Mm -hmm. what, I mean, we've seen almost a shift from uh, the CSR role uh, doing the, the, the good things that companies do, uh, maybe to buy off the, the bad things that they were doing on the other side, to now marketing, leading in many organizations, the, the work around purpose. Is this right? And, and, and what do you think the role of marketing should be? It's funny because I think it's exactly four years ago to the day that I delivered my inaugural lecture at the University of Oxford in, in, the, in the post that I now hold. And it was called Marketing with Purpose. You know, it was all about sort of the role of marketing as a strategic part of an organization that helps solve problems. And so this notion about problem solving, uh, I find very appealing. Maybe it's, I used to be an engineer, so the sort of solving problems aspect of that is very core to that um, discipline. I think the sense that Colin was expressing with respect to marketing's role in this is, well, if you're going to solve people's problems, and those people may well be your customers or consumers or potential customers and consumers, then you, you need to understand them, their lives, what, what, what's going on um, in addition to those problems that, that the corporation through its brands or, or offers to the market can indeed try and help address. So I think that's part of where marketing comes in. And indeed my, my view of, of sort of marketing with purpose and, and the way that a marketer can um, contribute, not only to sort of, I think it's a, a two-pronged thing. There's a marketing contributing to the broader corporate purpose discussion and then execution on that purpose. Um, because of marketing, marketing obviously being at that boundary between the inside and, and the external environment. So uh, perhaps who better to talk to about well, what, what's really going on out there in the marketplace than the CMO and insights um, professionals and so on. So I think there's that bit contributing to what's going on at the top. But then I think also in sort of living and breathing uh, this sense of purpose in what we do as marketers, um, it's that notion that we, we need to help solve customers' problems. And I mean, to the example that Seth posted in the chat before about his orange juice, um, I, you know, I would say, no, your, your orange juice, Tropicana doesn't necessarily have to have a consumer-facing purpose to solve some massive world-scale problem. You know, if it helps make Seth's morning just that little bit better because he gets his orange juice, that's a good start. But then behind the scenes, which I think is also what Colin was talking about, if they're sustainably sourcing oranges and have appropriate approaches to production and supply chain, you know, the, the, the behind the scenes aspect of the business, and that might be how they deliver what they're doing. Um, that maybe is only a tip of the iceberg in terms of the, the customer facing aspect to delivering on whatever their purpose might be. What's interesting though, is as brand purpose has sort of gained in popularity or maybe even notoriety because 
brands have been saying, oh gosh, what is our purpose? And it's become a bit of a pain point for some. The research, and I saw actually Michael Diamond, one of our partners here with IRG as well, was asking about academic research. Well, Colin, I'm sure, has more to say on that. But one thing I could say from the marketing side of things, we've been doing some research, and my colleague Felipe Tomás has been leading this at Oxford, um, where we've looked at WPP and Kantar's brand Z brand valuation data over the last about 15 years. And uh, obviously all the marketers on here would you know, be familiar with brand valuation, um, but looking at those drivers of brand value or brand equity are quite interesting because they've been measuring for about the last five or six years, responsibility and purpose and breaking that into different dimensions, social, environmental, and so on. And what we've basically seen, the relative contribution, and this is in consumers' minds, I should add, the relative contribution of those sort of purpose-related potential drivers of brand value have gone from almost nothing, let's say five years ago, to being really, really important and in, in some sense have grown exponentially in their relative importance compared to other things like differentiation. And so it's saying that consumers are actually rewarding brands for having purpose and that's filtering through to brand value. And we've also got some work that shows there's a uh, stock market uh, consequence of that as well. So I think the research is starting to come in terms of brands and marketing. Consumers are recognizing us for it now too, but we've clearly got an important role to play. And if I could just add to that, there is increasing evidence that the types of effects that Andrew is talking about at the level of brands is reflected at the corporate level, where companies that demonstrate that they have an authentic purpose reveal better financial performance on a number of criteria, including the stock market performance, and they display greater resilience in terms of their performance. Uh, and that is a consequence of lots of elements of which consumer attitude is clearly one important component. But another very important component is employee satisfaction. And the way in which people frequently relate purpose to companies is via uh, the views of employees about the companies for which they work, where a purposeful company attracts people who feel that their work is more meaningful and fulfilling, and therefore they contribute more than they do in other organizations. So there are many routes through which this notion of purpose then feeds into the success of companies. So let me let me just build on that because we created the Institute for Growth program, uh, focusing mostly on marketers. But indeed, you're now touching on other aspects, and I want to bring the two ideas together because on the one hand, marketing has usually played the role with insights of decoding the world, uh, the world around us, and uh, I think basically companies, if you were went into boardroom meetings uh, pre-COVID. Uh, the stakeholders in that world that were listened to mostly were the customers that were paying for our services and the shareholders, the capital markets that were uh, providing us uh, the means to do that. Uh, the day after COVID, suddenly two other stakeholders became very important. The colleague, uh, the employee was, are they safe? And are we doing everything we can to, um, to make sure that they uh, are, are being taken care of? And the communities where uh, literally the company, and I think almost every company, was either asking themselves or being asked, what are you doing to make a difference? So post or in the new reality of now all stakeholders being important, do you see an expanded role 
for marketing with its innate abilities to understand the underlying needs and the opportunity of um, creating value propositions, do you see a role for marketing in working with their colleagues in HR, in finance, in across the company to actually help the company understand all those stakeholders better and create value in the eyes of all those stakeholders better? Yes, and I'd, I, I, I'd like to give an illustration of that through some work that we're currently doing in the business school in Oxford, and that is on family-owned businesses. Now, family-owned businesses are very interesting because they are, for the most part, some of the largest businesses in the world. And they, in general, get a reception from the public at large as being more trustworthy than other types of business. And in particular, they are found to be better places to work. They have more satisfied employees than other firms. People feel that they're being better cared for, better treated, better valued uh, in family-owned businesses than other businesses. But at the same time, those family businesses often score rather badly in terms of their broader societal performance and their environmental performance. So if you look at their performance in relation to ESG measures, they perform rather poorly. Now, to your point, Mark, the notion that there's been a, a general embracing of uh, stakeholder interests is not then borne out when you look at particular companies. They are often making, if you like, trade-offs. Yeah. And in many respects, coronavirus has forced companies to make a lot more trade-offs in terms of, for example, do they cut their prices to their most uh, disadvantaged customers or do they retain their employees? Do they produce societally beneficial products or do they go on paying their dividends that may need to go to pensioners who require that as, that, as an income? And what these family-owned businesses are really realizing is they hadn't fully appreciated the nature of who their relevant customer base is. And by a customer base, I don't just mean their customers, but really the people who are important from the point of view of their firms. And what marketing I think can really do is to help companies to identify what really lies behind their purpose. To what extent should a family business take account of interest beyond just their employees or their very local communities to embracing society more generally uh, or environmental factors. Because from the point of view of the company, the attitude of societies and their investors and the broader group are incredibly important in terms of their overall success. So marketing, I think, can bring that sort of perspective that is extremely important for the boards and owners of companies. I, I, I want to just follow up because you brought in the, the concept of different uh, ownership structures, basically, market, uh, family versus. And, and re when reading uh, your book, uh, Prosperity, which I really highly recommend to everybody listening in today, it's part of our program as well. You um, Somewhere along the line, you, you shoot down Friedman's um, uh, remit of 
thinking about the shareholders only with the, the, the very insightful comment I thought was that it, we're, we've come from a place where companies used to be owned by people that sat in communities that owned those companies for a very long time and had to live with the implications of their decisions. And actually today ownership is, uh, is very fluid. Uh, it's very, very short on average. And um, that gets to corporate governance. And I, and I would like, um, and, and David Weldon asked that question and I promised to come back to it much earlier in the chat. Um, what needs to change? Going all the way back to the Adam Smith's dilemma of management versus ownership. How do we lock this in corporate governance so that the management of the company is fully in line with the larger purpose of an organization and delivering against that, not just short-term shareholder interest? Well, ownership is key to that. And you're absolutely right, in particular when we sit in the UK and the United States, what we see is a very strong influence from financial markets and in particular stock markets and a real concern that those are driving companies to be short-term in their focus. But let me just come back to that example that I was talking about, because although in the UK and the US, that is the way in which most large corporations are structured, that is not true in most countries around the world. Most of them do have what are termed blockholders, shareholders who have large blocks of shares, which they hold for long periods of time. And that is very important because it brings a degree of stability or it can bring a degree of stability to the company that it's very hard for those who are running listed companies with dispersed shareholders to recreate. So what is needed in terms of governance is a recognition by the boards of companies and their executives of their role in defining the corporate purpose and ensuring that it's embedded and enacted throughout its business. But it also needs the support of those who own the business. The ownership isn't just within the business by the different units and different parts, it's by the owners themselves. And that is where there's been a serious failure of governance, a failure of governance by the institutional investors that hold these shares on behalf of uh, us as individual investors, but have not really ensured that the companies in which they're investing are promoting corporate purposes and are supported by those investors in promoting those corporate purposes. At the beginning of the program uh, at the Institute, we take the letter uh, that was written by BlackRock CEO who is exactly one of those people two years ago now saying to every company CEO, if you want us to invest, by the way, the largest institutional investor in the world, then I want to see the strategy for creating value for all stakeholders, not just financial ones. Of course, it took one year for the business roundtable uh, to respond uh, 200 CEOs, uh, American, but uh, nevertheless, very prominent companies. Now we're a year after that. And I'd love your evaluation both on the initial intent of the business roundtable. Was it indeed lipstick on the pig or was this a true grabbing the opportunity to shift company uh, strategic direction in accordance to the development that you've described? And, and a year later, there's been some very critical 
pieces around delivery, especially during COVID, against that business roundtable declaration. So can I ask you both for an evaluation from your perspective? Maybe I'll go first, Mark, just because uh, Colin, Colin is probably more the expert on this, but I'll tee it up. I mean, it's funny you mentioned BlackRock. So uh, their CMO, Frank Cooper, had a conversation with us recently for, our, uh, for the podcast, Future Proof, that we do with, with, uh, between Oxford and Kantar. And what, what struck me as really interesting about what he was talking about in terms of you know, taking that, that purpose at BlackRock and then turning it into action is really the the complexity of that journey, um, and it was you know strongly encourage people to to listen to it because it was one of the the few I think good examples that I've heard of. A, I felt a very clear articulation of of how to go through that, but an honest articulation of how to go through that sort of transformative type journey. But what's interesting there is he talks a lot about, and I think this is probably one of the potential issues with the with the business roundtable is this gap between intention and action and in inevitably of course there is going to be a time lag between you know the stated good appropriate intentions and then and then the actions that really bear fruit uh, off of that and so you know it may well be that some some companies jump on a bandwagon which i don't think is is necessarily the right intent but those who really believe in it and are trying to change the way that they do things. It's, it's not a, a flicker switch overnight type of thing. So where I do think some criticism is appropriately placed either to kind of cast a light on those who were not really doing it for the right reasons, or just to kind of shine a light on everyone to kind of put a little fire underneath everyone and say, come on, hurry up, start showing the action. I think, I think, I think it may, might frankly be too soon, particularly where big business transformations are involved in, in changing the way things are done and making really tough decisions around some of that. Okay, uh, well, I, I, I agree with you, Andrew, but let me just build a little bit uh, on what you've said, because I think it's important to understand what those signatories to the roundtable statement were saying. They signed up to a statement that said that the purpose of a business is to deliver value to customers, to invest in employees, to support suppliers, to care for communities in the environment, and to deliver long-term value to their shareholders. Now, frankly, what has emerged is that every signatory to that declaration thought that is what their company was basically already doing. You know, they were looking after various parties and delivering value to their, their shareholders. So that there wasn't anything particularly that needed to change as a consequence of that. And for that reason, hmm. one of the most striking features about that whole event was that virtually none of the CEOs and presidents signing those declarations went to their boards to seek their approval. Now, uh, what that is really illustrating is a notion of what is termed enlightened shareholder value, that the best way of running a business is to look after your stakeholders because it's good for your shareholders. It's what is often given that uh, unfortunate phrase of win-win, that it's, uh, as Jim Collins uh, put it, the genius of the end. You deliver both benefits for your stakeholders and greater value for your shareholders. Now, what has happened since then is that, well, actually, 
businesses are finding that in the crisis, it's not always possible to be in a win-win situation. And there is someone who's in a lose position. And that is forcing them to think rather more carefully about what they signed up to. And what is giving real substance to it now is the observation that what is key to really making it happen is measurement. Measuring what companies are actually doing and whether or not they really are delivering those benefits to their stakeholders, as well as the things that is the thing that is already being measured, and that is their financial performance. And so what many of those signatories have done since uh, the declaration in August of 2019 is to join forces in terms of promoting the development of new measures. And one of the things that has just happened this week is the, that the IFRS, the uh, uh, International Financial Reporting Standards Board, has come out with a statement that it's going to be setting up a sustainability standards board to require companies, or it may be doing this, to require companies to report on their sustainability performance. And once that starts happening, you then really do get uh, a need to implement the uh, notion of the purpose of a business. I want to ask two things that are slightly different places. We can um, capture them um... We can discuss them separately. The, the first is around the concept and the role of the marketeer here. We, we started the whole discussion, Colin, around the humanizing growth series uh, because we saw that a lot of marketers, a lot of chief marketing officers were feeling left out in the business growth discussion internally. In other words, they were being seen and respected as functional leaders but less than they felt necessary in the, where are we going to be as a business five years from now? Um, a lot of complaining about not being invited at the top table, uh, new roles like chief growth officers uh, being created. And so we studied what the role of marketing in the companies that were outperforming um, in, in growth terms were. And we saw that one, those organizations were defining growth in a multi-stakeholder perspective, mm -hmm. but two, that those marketers were playing a broader role in helping their colleagues understand the needs and create value. And, and that's why we're called the Institute for Real Growth. And I, I want to get back to that and ask Andrew, because if indeed we are doing what we've always done or should have been doing, identifying unmet needs, and now we're taking a broader perspective, all stakeholders, yes, the customer, but also those other stakeholders, um, are marketers indeed better placed to help companies understand how to add value? It needs to get measured, but how to get add, how to add value in new ways? Where do you see that work well? Well, I think I think I think marketers are well placed to do that. I mean, if you take the measurement point, you know, good good marketing organisations measure a lot of things, um, and, and increasingly so. Um, now, that's not necessarily all the right things. Um, so identifying the right measures and the right indicators is important. But I think the, in some sense, the measurement culture um, in, in our discipline is, is, a, is a healthy one to be able to contribute to, to it in that sense. But I think more broadly, I mean, we, we can think about the marketer in terms of a job description uh, and a CMO even at that level. Or we can think in terms of a mindset that, that I would call a, a marketing mindset or, or a growth-oriented marketing mindset, which 
encapsulates a lot of these ideas that, that we've been talking about and brings them into action and reality, but it doesn't live just in someone who's got the word marketing in their job title um, or indeed sits in, in, in that type of function inside of an organization. You know, the notion of, um, you know, well, purpose we've talked a lot about, but the notion of thinking about the external market, thinking about customers, thinking about unmet needs, solving problems, large and small and everything in between. Um, and, and, and generating real value um, on the customer side of the equation, and then also figure out how that pays into other um, stakeholders as well as the organization itself. These things are fundamental principles of a sort of a growth centric way of thinking about marketing. So, you know, if there's anyone well-placed, if I think about sort of the seats at the table of the, you know, all the different C roles, of course, I'm biased to say that CMO needs to play a big role in that, but I, I really do believe it. Um, because of sort of this, this inside outside aspect that, that marketing always has to have. If anything, though, where we probably need to um, think more about, I suppose, or, or, or um, not upskill in that sense, but, but get market, marketing leaders even more focused on is then the internal aspects and all the non-customer stakeholders. Um, because yeah. I think if, if we're so customer obsessed and, and directly focused on the outside market, then obviously the other stakeholders in a multi-stakeholder view don't get the, the same amount of airtime. So, so I think there's a, a potential crack in the armor there. Um, but I think this is what you see. You know, you said it yourself, Mark, in terms of the, the real growth study that uh, IRG did uh, in terms of the overperformers, they had that flavor to them. And, and I think this is definitely the in a, in a lot of respects, the future of marketing from, from a leadership standpoint, it, it's being involved in these bigger initiatives um, because it, it, you can't just assign it to one individual or one department. I think, I think that's, that's the other leadership lesson out of this. You can't just give it to someone to, you know, you know if, if it's a social issue, like we're seeing with diversity and inclusion at the moment, you know, it, it has to be owned by an entire leadership team, an entire organization. You can't, you may well indeed have a leader assigned you know, as, as the chief diversity officer or, or similar, but it, yeah. it's not just their job, it's everyone's job. And so I think market, marketers can, can embrace those sorts of things too. Yeah, so it's interesting you say that because Spencer Stewart, our partner, um, published a white paper this week uh, around the profile of the Da Vinci growth CMO, which you've contributed to. And it's very much that partner role with the other disciplines. I, I wanna ask uh, Colin one last question uh, which is very much around the, so what is it then that the company does? Where does it help? Where does it uh, not damage, but perhaps even help uh, the world uh, a step in the right way? And we had a question from uh, a colleague at, uh, at the UN, uh, the IRG will be partnering with the United Nations Global Compact. And uh, someone you worked very closely with, Paul Foreman, um, who basically, I think, gives you credit for much of his work and thinking said that, look, there's the United Nations uh, Sustainable Development Goals, and that is the roadmap, the business plan for the world. So what is your perspective on businesses actually thinking through their purpose and aligning them, not just with anything, but with one of those 17 Sustainable Development Goals? Do you believe that they are messy and, and, and that that's where companies should be thinking about, or are there other ways? No, I think, I think they're very helpful in terms of identifying a broad notion of what is really important from a global perspective. But I think what one should be doing 
is to think about it in a very personal way. That in particular, when you're setting up a business, you're reflecting on what is it that you can really contribute? What are, what are the problems that you're really in a place to help others solve? And that is something that comes very naturally to us because that's the way in which we interact with other people. And if one builds that into the way in which people within organizations, small or large, think about their roles, that immediately changes the nature of an organization to being outward looking in terms of, well, how can I contribute to helping the problems, perhaps outward in the sense of other people in the organization, but more generally outwardly looking to how do I help solve other people's problems? Uh, and if one acts in that way, then that is creating a real potential opportunity. And what I've, I've created a number of companies myself, and what, in each and every case, what gives rise to success is when one really identifies something that hasn't been solved to date, where one can make a distinctive contribution, and that therefore is something that is of considerable commercial advantage, as well as of benefit to other people. I, I want to, you, you already raised the term personal in your answer there, and I want to end this hour on a more personal note. Companies in, in many ways uh, were often created by founders and were about personal perspective and personal purpose that turned into business purpose. But there's a lot of leaders listening to this talk. And, and both of you work with the highest leaders, some of the most innovative ones. Uh, you mentioned Paul, uh, Satya Nadella gives you a lot of credit. Colin also, Andrew, you work with a, a lot of CEOs and CMOs. If there's one thing that the leaders listening in this conversation can really apply to themselves right now, what would you say it should be? It's the most important asset that you have as a leader. And that is not just your inspiration, but your trustworthiness, your authenticity, the extent to which people, your employees, your customers, your suppliers, your societies place trust in you to live up to what your stated purpose is. Because ultimately, the most important asset of a business is its trustworthiness. And the way in which it creates real value going forward is to be trusted by all of the parties with which it interacts. Uh, so how do I follow that? I think for me, it, it's, it's a perspective I, I use a lot in, in my own work, including some, some, um, a company that, that actually some colleagues and I just founded, but in, in work with CEOs, CMOs and everyone else is to really, really, really remember and live and breathe humans first. And whilst we might think that's an obvious thing to say, and indeed maybe it is, in the pursuit of solving problems, particularly in, in a lot of the work that I do, which is more in the digital and technology space, we get really, really carried away with the tools that we could use and the, and, and the exciting potential of some of those. And somehow the, the humanity in our approach to solving problems just kind of drifts out away from the heart of everything. And so I think if we remember as leaders, as we're trying to solve problems, particularly in, in crisis mode, 
that the, the, the essence of humanity has to be so, so literally written above the desk for me is humans first. Uh, and that's what I say to all of our students as well, no matter what they're studying. And I think that, that dovetails pretty nicely with, with Colin's point about authenticity and trust. Well, I was, what makes it so special is we have mostly CMOs listening in. And I'll never forget uh, the conversation with one about five years ago who said, Mark, it's all very nice, this purpose stuff, but I work in an American company. Uh, people don't want to hear this. I can't get away with uh, anything like that in, in this company. And I don't think any marketer could make that claim today. Oh. As we come out of COVID, as we see the human tragedy, but also the human opportunity, uh, I don't think there's a CFO or CEO in the world that isn't trying to understand the human needs and the propensity of the corporation to respond to that. Our, our timing is now. So if you are listening, if not you, who? And if not now, when? Colin, Andrew, thank you so much for contributing to this journey of the Humanizing Growth Series, where we're trying to figure it out together, but we're building on enormous expertise and experience. And that's you. Thank you so much. And everyone else, watch this space and uh, see you next time. Thank you, everyone, and goodbye.